So the fifth element's about to leave Amazon Prime for free viewing. And I think it's our duty to tell our five listeners that they need to go watch it. <laughs> why would we tell them that, Ryan? I don't, I don't know why we would tell them that. Yeah, I was wondering that too. It is an amazing movie, so. Why would you put it in your amazing category? I don't know. It just, it, it, it's still a cult classic, apparently. Yeah. It's almost like five wrongs do make a right, because there's so many things that are wrong, but it's still kind of great. Yeah, it, it's the weirdest bad movie that is actually still really interesting. Yeah. I mean, the opening with, like, the turtles that are <laughs> the worst <laughs> puppets ever. <laughs> or, like, Jim Henson's cousin's design or something. Or it's like... They remind me of, of yeah, they, they're like some bad creature from... Yeah, there's some movie that... Yeah, I feel like it's a riff on something. It's like Jabba the Hutt with a little head or something. I don't know. Well, and for an advanced race, they move at like one mile an hour. You're like, <laughs> I have a key. And they get shot by guns. <laughs> yeah. And Dylan from 90210 is just sitting there drawing <laughs> for no reason at the beginning. That's right. Like, what is he doing here? But he does look good, I have to admit. It's like, this oh, is yeah. why he was popular. He's in the desert sweating over archaeology, but he's got a perfectly coiffed hair. Yes, you know? with the wild professor revealing the secrets of the world, as he writes. And a crazy priest with poison. Yelling at poor Egyptian kids for light. Yes. Light! <laughs> um, and also, did you ever watch the movie Friday? No, my brother's a big fan. It was one of these crossover movies, you know, late 90s, 2000s. And I'm not sure what the appeal of it was. I think it was just genuinely funny, but the bully in the neighborhood was... Debo. Debo! You know, the guy that was really gruff, and he gets beat up at the end of this movie Friday. So he, that guy suddenly becomes very famous because, uh, in fact, I think that was one of his first real breakout movies was the movie Friday. Mm -hmm. And in it, he plays like a complete knucklehead. Like he's just a big, hulking, and he's legitimately scary sometimes. <laughs> the problem is, is like, I think his second movie, the follow-up, was The Fifth Element. <laughs> and he plays the president. Oh, it's so bad. Of, like, it? I think it's the president of the world. I, I didn't really yeah, quite get the... it's this. not real clear. But he doesn't do a bad job, I, I will say, looking at it back. But at the time, you're going, there is no way Debo is <laughs> president of the world. Like, Except for his enemies were yeah. beaten to a pulp, and he just assumed it by sheer force of will. I, I don't know. It's like the Cuban Missile Crisis standoff where... Is it like the Cuban Missile Crisis standoff? Well, it, it, in the sense of for Earth, because there's this big thing coming at them, and are they going to win? Yeah. And they're all like locked up in this room. They're not smoking, but they might as well be like, right. oh, what's going to happen? And he's supposed to be the supreme leader. And he's just like, it just still sounds like the guy from Friday. <laughs> he's just in a, in a suit or something. And Bruce Willis is 90s Bruce Willis, which he's the same character in every movie. Yes, but he's so great at that character. Kind of like a gumshoe detective, bat down on his luck, hasn't shaved. Yeah. I, I love that role, but yeah, yeah, it is the same role. But it is, you have to admit, you have to admit, it's Die Hard. It is. The, die Hard in space. Yeah, that's one of the great greatest action movies ever made, in my opinion. It's just the first Die Hard, just, you know, the villain, the the pacing, the, you know, it, it just hits on all targets, I think. You know, one of the legendary weird things about Die Hard is, you know, when I was grew up watching it, the bad guys, of course, are Germans. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching it going, okay, they're speaking German. And then I had to learn German for the PhD and lived in Germany for a year. And mm -hmm. I remember I rewatched it at some point. They're not speaking German at all. <laughs> what are they talking? They didn't want to hire, I guess, a translator or something. Yeah, that costs or, money. Or come up with fake dialogue and have to do subtext. 
They're literally just making it up as oh, actors. Because no. that's a classic thing you don't do because it's never convincing. Exactly. And they're just like, Breka. like they're just saying like, uh, like the weirdest, like guttural, like, ach, oh, ach. that's just what Germans sound like. And I don't know if the German peoples know this, but it's, it's got to be offensive. It's like, all we hear is kind of like a clearing of the throat. That's all we want oh, your language to sound like. That's really funny. I hadn't heard that. Uh, I just remember the bit of nice suit, that great line he has nice when suit. he gets on the elevator and kills him later. Um, the bad well, and guy. The, who, who's the bad Snape. guy? Um, Snape. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he just passed. Such a great actor. Uh, but back to the fifth element, and uh, you're talking about the countdown at the end. It struck me with that because back to The Force Awakens, Star Wars, same, same bit they do in sci-fi where we've got 10 seconds before <laughs> Cataclysm, and you just think... Are you sure about that? Like, how did you calculate to the last second? I mean, if there's yes. a bomb with a timer, sure, you can see it. But they've calculated when when that, you know, force ray in Star Wars is going to destroy the planet. Right. Same thing with this. Like, we've calculated, like, well, maybe there's a little gray area of this. Like, are you sure? It's but, the first time you're firing the weapon. <laughs> like, there's not even been a... I don't even know how you test the Star Destroyer. Exactly. <laughs> like, just shoot that rock. Um <laughs> We should get Hawking on here, ask him, like, could you really calculate the force really? of this thing? I, I know you gave us a digitizer where we could see the <laughs> countdown, but that doesn't help us believe that you know to the, to the letter. So in the sci-fi future, the first thing you do is get something to calculate when you might die based That's right. on their tech. That's the first thing you build. Well, based like. off of quantum theory. <laughs> yeah, And they're That's shooting crazy. like this beam across like multiple galaxies. Mm-hmm. Or I guess it's one galaxy, but multiple star systems. Yeah, yeah. It's like they've calculated all the, the velocity and everything. Yeah. Uh, back to Fifth Element, it gets a lot of things right. The whole IDs with the multi-pass, which is hilarious. And and them sleeping in the little bunk thing and putting them to sleep. And then they do scan her retina and they don't have her registered. I mean, all that yeah. stuff is kind of happening. It's amazing. Well, the movie's weird because it goes from slapstick yes. to like really serious action to like, I mean, when... I'm not sure what the planet is supposed to be, some sort of primeval evil. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, what's his name, uh, Gary Oldman gets on the, somehow on the phone. <laughs> Who calls, like they never explain how evil calls. <laughs> Please hold, evil is on line one. But, but he's talking to him, and the voice is, of course, you know, digitized. But uh, he starts bleeding, remember, from like the top yes, of his head? Yes, it makes no sense. But so it's really like dark and scary. But then you have the scene where Bruce Willis takes the soldiers who are visiting and shoves them into like the freezer <laughs> yes. and they become like rigor mortis, like they yes. just get frozen in there. So this weird, like, I don't quite get it, but yeah. it moves back and forth between 80s flick and then slapstick kind of yes. really, t- or um, to speak of Friday, the guy who is the, the radio personality, Chris Tucker. Chris Tucker. I thought I had the Chris right. But in a scene, you can click on it. If you're using an iOS device, and it'll tell you who the actors are in that scene and give you trivia. Have you seen that? Do you have Amazon no. Video, Amazon Prime stuff? Well, I do, but I usually either watch on iTunes or something else. So if you've got Amazon Prime, try their video thing, and, and if you click on it to pause, the x-ray comes up, and it'll tell you who the actors are in the scene. It's amazing. And then you hit play, and five seconds later, it's already cataloged. I mean, I don't know how they do it. Because wow. this actors have changed a new scene, and it's already telling you who these actors are. Trivia, like you know, there's a bit in the corner that's not accurate. And the only thing I think about is Amazon put some intern in a corner. Oh like, gosh! Pause, Chris Tucker. Right. Like right. Or, you know, just keep going. Some nice religion major. Yeah, it's just like yeah, <laughs> former seminary student. Like, oh, what do you do now? Uh, I 
catalog actors and scenes for movies for Amazon? I just do Chris's. I specialize. <laughs> You're right. All right. So, uh, yes, he is crazy, the DJ guy. Yeah, I mean, over the top. With the, uh, the cane he's got with the microphone in it and dancing, and it is totally slapstick. To this day, I'm not sure if he's on the radio at all times <laughs> or if he goes off and on the radio. He's just talking. He seems to clock in and out. Yeah. And then he's like a womanizer on the side, all yes, the stuff. Yes, yes, yes. The interesting thing about that is that part was for Prince. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was written very outlandishly, mm-hmm. very elaborate things. But at least according to what I've seen online, Prince turned it down because he thought the outfits looked stupid. <laughs> he just thought they were crazy. And it was a little too over the top, I think, for the way he wanted to do it. So Chris Tucker's famous, so he moves right in. Suddenly mm-hmm. it's, there he is. Yeah. Yeah, it's very outlandish movie. There's the joke with them showing up all pretending to be Bruce Willis's character to get to redeem the ticket. Which was actually really funny. Yeah, it's a very good scene. Yeah, and the garbage in the back. Sorry about the garbage. And, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, and the t- his being a taxi driver and, and the way she lands on the taxi cab. And, uh, multipass. Yeah, multipass. Yeah, and her accent and learning English and... And of course, I mean, the whole thing doesn't make sense that she's the fifth no. element and, and like, what is she going to do and, and all she's that. She's a divine but, being who falls in love. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. You know. And then they have to have the, the war pacifism argument at the end. Like, I don't know if I want to save the world. <laughs> One of my favorite scenes is where he unveils what that gun does. <laughs> yes. Like, <laughs> yes the right. Shoots a net. <laughs> like, you have a missile. Why would you shoot a net? Right, right. But there's a red button just in case you don't ask so he can blow you up. Yeah, right next to your hand is a self-destruct. Yeah. Gary Oldman, that is that is a bizarre performance. I, I, I can't tell if he's being a parody or he just is a young actor, but the terrible Southern accent, awful. I can't believe Commissioner Gordon did that. You exactly. Know, it's just... With that weird haircut. And then he chokes on the cherry. Remember that bit? Yeah. Like that scene is just again. insane. Yeah. yeah. And then he gets saved in this argument, but... You know, by the by the other guy, the priest. So, mm-hmm. and the priest was an I Claudius and several famous things. And yeah, he was a famous guy. It is slightly anti-Semitic, though. The whole priest and the guy's got this weird yarmulke. Do you remember that thing that hat <laughs> yeah. he's wearing? But it's like a star yarmulke. Like it, it has like layers, like a pyramid. Yeah, weirdly, it's like really. <laughs> this is what you think of religion? Just the guy wears a silly hat. Right. Right. Yeah. And then the Egypt bit, like you were saying, it's almost, uh, it's always weird in a movie where they want to make a scope big. They either have to do a a voiceover explaining things or they have to do some weird sort of in Egypt in 5,000 years ago. And then they show this bit or whatever. And so they're showing the pyramids, which makes no sense because if you're the aliens and there's a secret weapon, you wouldn't build it in something that, I don't know, could get destroyed. (laughs) Right. right. (laughs) Right. It it just fails on a lot of levels. uh, How are we going to save the world? Let's put it in this place with a race that can't even like save itself in the early 1900s <laughs> from a right. you know, onslaught. Didn't it? What happened to the Sphinx? Didn't it get shot up by the the Nazis? Was that the ones that shot up the Sphinx or something? You mean in real history? Yeah, real history. Uh, I've Somebody. always well, I don't know if something. I've always heard it was Napoleon. Maybe it was Napoleon. Yeah, Somebody. Napoleon took Egypt. So and, maybe that was their first thing. It's like, oh well, we had the fifth element, or we had the four stones hidden there, but or the key. But uh, now they shot that up, so we'll build a different one. They're like, oh. I think it's just lore. I mean, I think, again, I don't know if it's for certain that Napoleon shot it, but I think it's like the nose fell off around that time. Yeah, it's the nose. That was the fifth element. Yeah, and the story in history, actual history, is that uh, some have grown that up to say that Napoleon, like, shot the Sphinx for firing practice, Mm -hmm. which doesn't work. I mean, Napoleon wanted to own these things. 
and keep mm. them. He didn't want to shoot them up and make them screwed up. But mm-hmm. yeah, something happened. Were in the Nazis life. in Africa, or they were they were battling in Africa, weren't they? Did I make that up about Egypt? No, no, they were. Yeah, yeah. but I think I okay. Think, I feel better now. I feel like the Sphinx nose thing had already happened. Yeah, I think you're right. Because we have no pictures. Of, it's before photography, at least. We have no uh, pictures right, of it right. without with the nose. Gotcha. So we both teach church history. I'm not a church historian, but I. Speaking of Egypt and history, but I pretend well, to be. Whatever pays the bills. Yeah, it's what pays the bills. Yeah. Uh, so we both both teach it, uh, and it's interesting. I, it's inescapable, I would say, especially yeah. someone like myself trained as a theologian. It struck me as I teach ethics or teach theology, many textbooks start with the history. And I think that says a couple of interesting things. First off, that history is really the framework. It's it's the the you know the scaffold that you're going to build theological or ethical ideas on. Uh, but it also points to the the contingency of Christianity and these sorts of ideas that you know ideas about the Trinity or the canon they don't they don't pop out fully formed like Aphrodite. Yeah. They uh, they develop over time, and Christianity is a historical religion. And, and that can't be avoided. And that's a hard thing for students. They mm-hmm. really want it to just be what they think it is. And when you tell them, well, you know, it's not like that, they kind of look, aw. So I don't know. What, what do you find with history? No, you're right. If you tell a student that a certain era or a certain period of time struggled to define a doctrine, mm-hmm. or there was a time when the Arians seemed to dominate everything, they will consign like that entire time to the flames. Yeah. Like, it was so obvious. What's their problem? Like, how do they not know? No, I think you're right. I think, yeah, the framework, but it, it's it's more than a framework. Uh, and it's not like it's the software operating system that everything else goes on. I like to tell students it's a ligament course. Yeah. It combines, let's say you take a Bible course. Let's say you take a theology course. Sometimes there is this, well, wait, like I went through this narrative of John or the Gospels or whatever, or the Old Testament. And then I jump to theology, and we're talking in, at least to a first-time student, something that feels a little more abstract. How did we go from that to that? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, at various times, people either had to clarify or to translate languages of the scriptures, or summarize even. Just the, just the act of summarizing. Mm-hmm. What do you believe in something? Invites the theological question, the dogmatic question, which is, what, you, know, you can't just say, well, I believe in Jesus. Well, what do you believe about Jesus? Right. And then you're into Christology, Trinity, Soteriology, all this stuff. And just because we have a jargon and a shorthand that's developed over time doesn't make it wrong. But too often we feel like the jargon is itself the thing that was handed down, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But as you were just saying, the history drives it. So in the historical record, we are shaped. We can't go back to pre-Nicaea and pretend like there weren't conversations and deep reflections on what does being of God mean? How do we understand Christ? We live after that, or we live after the Reformation with its talk about works and sanctification, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's not that previous centuries were wrong. It's just that, as one person said, you know, the grammar of the church always develops. Yeah, It's having to learn how to describe things. Or there are places where people lose clarity, and they have to figure out a better way of putting it. I mean, I mean one of the interesting things about the Trinity, for example— this is part of the book that I'm trying to work on now. It's not so much that there was this devious plot to ruin the Trinity. It's that they had a set of vocabularies hmm. that, depending on how you meant the different words, mm-hmm. could lead you down different trajectories. 
And so what Nicaea says is, we're not going to go that trajectory, we're going to use this one. And is it imposed? Sure. Is it, did they kick areas out? Yeah. So there's some historical complexity there. But it's just a time when there was, so, you know, it's sort of, what do, what do we believe? And the other thing, though, with students is they think, when, let's say they have a, a conversation with a friend on something they disagree with. And it's, it's, hopefully it's a good conversation and they're being friendly. But what they're often doing is using vocabulary and this grammar in a way that might be inappropriate. They might be using it in a way that it sounds good to them. And the great thing about history is it takes you back to when these things are first being formed or when there was a pregnant moment where things are being debated. Mm-hmm. There's and slippage it, to the words. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, history... Um, History does kind of humble us in a sense that we, mm. we think these things are set, but they were set by history itself. And when we go back far enough, then the terms are being defined and, yeah. um, and it, it, gets, it gets tricky. One of my real goals as a teacher with undergrads, if they can, and we talked about this before, if they can get the diversity, the diversity of both the Christian tradition that, you know, Greek Orthodox, Catholic, mm-hmm. Protestant, within Protestant, all these varieties, but also history that if we gotten, you know, Doctor Who shows up in a TARDIS, we go back to a thousand years ago, being a Christian would look very different. And that's okay. That would be awesome. What's that? That would be awesome. That would be totally awesome. We live in context. You know, it's, it's interesting to me that we're obviously historical beings because we live in places of time and space, and we change, and our mm-hmm. thoughts change, and yet we want religion to not reflect that. Yeah. Like, we're yeah. historical beings that strangely reject history. We, yeah. we want yeah. it to be static, but it's never been, and no religion is. So it's kind of the strange assumption that it's got a, well, you know, it's always been this way. Well, why would you even assume that? But but yeah. so many people want it to just, maybe it's because religion is so absolute and, and you, you want this kind of, you don't want it to get messy, but but if any if religion majors about anything, it's about getting messy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, one of the exercises I sometimes do whenever I feel a little bit of a sense that the students need to be warned or warmed up even to historical research is I start and I say, all right, show of hands. How many of you have an opinion on free will, the doctrine of free will? Mm-hmm. Do we have it? What is it? This kind of stuff. Every hand, of course, goes up. Like, like no one doesn't have an opinion. I then ask them to flip to the verse where the word free will is used. Because <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't show up. Mm-hmm. And I say... Do you think that maybe you've been historically conditioned by a conversation? Now, granted, the issues of will, our will, and our actions, and these types of things are part of Scripture, of course. And there are places that people go and look, Romans, whatever. But the fact that they use it, that, that I, I use the jargon word that they all assumed, they all knew, mm-hmm. they all at least had some opinion on, and yet there's no verse that says, the doctrine of free will is the following. Yes. And I said, well, all right, now let's go back to the time when this was actually being discussed, really like in a very pregnant way, and of course going to Dort and other things, or to Pelagius and Augustine, whatever. I think maybe what the way to put it is when a student realizes that they are conditioned, mm-hmm. but it, it might be for a, a thing they care about, then they're more prone to say, all right, let's talk about that. Whereas hmm. sometimes you could do it cynically and say, oh, you're just a bunch of historically programmed, none of this matters. Right. You know, you just got handed down. It, it yeah. is that scandal of relativity, I think, that bothers us, that we think these absolutes are absolute. That's hard to, to deal with and reconstruct to, to realize that really the Sabbath would be Saturday, but Christians move it to a Sunday. And and so you're like, whoa, right. who did that? Constantine. Like, why? 
Um, they just wanted to. Right. Yeah. It just seemed cool. And, uh, and, and partly, too, right, the Jewish Christian struggle for identity. Yeah, I mean, the problem with that, that conversation, usually I say, is Christians like, did functionally what we call worship every day. Hmm. They would gather, they would pray, they would do the Lord's Supper mm-hmm. on most days hmm. in the morning. And so determining what day was fully Sabbath worship is itself a, uh, a, the development of it, where it's one day in seven, you know, where we, unless you're Anglican or in a tradition that has, you know, so daily prayer or something like this, most of us don't darken the door of our church until Sunday. Mm-hmm. And so we're thinking, okay, when did that start? And the answer is a lot later, because, you know, for most of, at least the early part of the history, again, determining it is hard. But it's before Constantine, for sure. They're, they're meeting also on Sundays, and Sundays becomes more, it's referred to as the Lord's Day, all this kind of stuff. Let's say relativism doesn't enter their minds. The The other thing that enters their minds is conspiracy theories. Because <laughs> those are awesome. Yeah. This was like, or like the great another great example from Constantine is, so at the Council of Nicaea, they commissioned for 40, I think it was 40, Bibles to be copied and bound up and sent to churches because there were churches that didn't have mm-hmm. like good, nice, complete editions. Well, everyone started to repeat that this is when the Bible was formed for the first time. It's like, well, Constantine finally bound the Bible up, and it was at that moment. And it's going, the canon question was earlier. All he did was he photocopied. That's all he did was functionally ask for photocopies. And so you get these uh, conspiracies like, uh, you know, when did this happen? Or, you know, scholasticism. All right, when did it really go bad? Hmm. It's like, I I don't have a smoking gun. There's There's no man on the grassy knoll here. Yes, yeah. Yeah, we talk about modernity, and I tell them, well, some people think modernity started with the Tudors, and some people think modernity started with Martin Luther, and some people right. think modernity started with the French Revolution. Some people right. thought it started with Descartes, and it's like, so you've got basically, what, 260-some years of history, and, and yeah. historians can't agree on it, and you see the students just go like, what? Yeah, or with Luther, 500. I mean, we have 500 years of modernity. Right. You know, or, yeah. you know, this, this, this increasing debate right now, uh, are we post-Christian? And I'm just always saying, what do you mean by that? You know, a place where Christianity doesn't have cultural supremacy. <laughs> I'm like, uh, that's like 1700. <laughs> like, like that's not right, right. that's not since like the uh, uh, you know the last five years or something. Yeah, maybe the Fairy Queen back in the day, <laughs> and then Spencer or something. Spencer, 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 stand up, Spencer. Well, and I, I think this is where historians screw themselves up because they impose rigid distinctions on things, like time demarcations mm-hmm. that are heuristic. They're meant to so that people can remember the time. Yeah. And then suddenly it becomes, okay, so that, like, people woke up in 1477, the year after the West fell, the Western Roman Empire fell. They woke up and said, oh, this is the Dark Ages, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, as if they were aware of it. And... No one realizes is that this phrase, the Dark Ages, or some of these other timestamps were imposed centuries later. I mean, we only call it the Middle Ages because folks in the Renaissance called it that. Yes, it's just convenience. But there's still truth to it. There is something to the Middle Ages different from oh, sure. modernity. Yeah. So yeah, they're kind of arbitrary, but they're still useful. And so getting Very much. students to understand that these categories are useful, but also misleading is really hard. Well, the great example there is Monty Python. It's like, just throw up Monty Python. It's like, Monty Python is, in some ways, a spoof on the Middle Ages, also spoofing our memory of the Middle Ages. 
You're talking about Holy Grail, you mean? Holy Grail, yeah, yeah, exactly. With the car and all that, like the car show up and arrest him? Or just <laughs> right. the whole thing? <laughs> That's right. I will taunt you with my backside. <laughs> yeah, the, and it's like the old French-English thing. Yeah, you know when I first yeah. saw that movie? Youth group in the Methodist church, UMYF. Oh. So growing up in church, we used to play hide-and-go-seek and watch Holy Grail. And Did the adults know about this? <laughs> uh, they probably didn't. They, they probably didn't know what it was or didn't care, but... Yeah, there's that one scene maybe in, that you shouldn't see as a teenager, uh, like Sir Galahad or something. But other yeah. than that, it's actually a pretty clean movie. <laughs> yeah. No, I love The Black Knight. Yeah. yeah, The Black Knight. I mean, it's a little gory maybe, but it's it, that's so over the top. It's back to T- Tarantino. It's uh, it's it's, it's kind of ludicrous speed. And you're right that there's a like there's a difference. Totally, there's a difference. But it's when these things become straightjacketed, I guess. Yeah. So we have to make demarcations. But it's, you know, I still have students who say, well, when was the Dark Ages? And I say, what do you mean by Dark Ages? Mm-hmm. Well, when, did, when was everyone dying at all times? You know, the life expectancy was 30. You know, women wore chastity belts. And I'm going, that's Hollywood. That's, that's, there's no sure. single generation where that kind of, I mean, they had the plague. But even that was like for a period. It mm-hmm. wasn't constant all the time. But the student, you know, they either go reductionistic the conspiracy ones are the fun ones because mm-hmm. they always – those are the ones that are, that are the hardest nuts to crack because they just go, no, it is this way. You know, I don't get a lot of that. It's interesting. It makes sense that students would say that, but I don't get a lot of students bringing that up. Maybe not students. For me, it's not so much students. Sometimes okay. it is. But it's it's the perceived sort of – I mean, uh, maybe it's because I have the YouTube thing and I get a lot of comments. <laughs> just people going, no, 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 it's this way. Mulder and Scully. Mulder and Scully. <laughs> it is. It's X-Files. Yeah. yeah. Like – like the the one video where this is obviously on display is my video on the Merovingians, right? And all I'm doing is telling us I didn't realize that this Merovingian thing is like Dan Brown levels of conspiracy, a cultural meme. I have people like writing in, well, isn't aren't the Merovingians the the lineage of Israel? Uh, aren't they the children of Christ? Like right. like crazy like comments like that. And I'm going. I don't even know what the assumption is that you're making. Yeah. You know, just constant. Like, I think there is sort of this Illuminati thing going on here. But I was just telling the story about a couple of kings that transitioned the world into the Middle Ages, the feudal system, this type of stuff. And none of my video talks about any of these conspiracies. But, you know, everyone's traced their lineage and their bloodline back to the Merovingians. So, yeah. of course, they, th- they think they're medieval kings now. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. yeah, Taylor's actually a, a British. Um, a translation of Merovingian, so I've got Merovingian blood. You didn't know that? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Here we go. Do you know what a reeve was? A reeve? A reeve. Like the reavers? Is that what it is? Uh, well, the, the, no, that's, a, that's R-E-A. Okay. R-E-E, a reeve. When I was a kid, I looked it up, and it, it was mistranslated from the Latin uh, in this book when I was a kid. It said we were butlers. Oh, but it's like, we're not butlers. It's not Victorian. So eventually I learned, you know, some of these things and it's from old English. It comes from an old world and it, we were the, it's very unfortunate. My people were those who were out in the feudal like lands beating the serfs to like stay at the plow. <laughs> like, oh God. like we were the enforcers. So I <laughs> guess Reaver is kind of in there, but so like the name sheriff is, comes from the two words Shire and Reeve. No, I didn't know that. Sheriff Shire Reeve. And it's, they were the enforcers. So when I was making a video on the, on the Middle Ages, I was looking up Reeve. 
Mm-hmm. There's the only picture they have of a medieval reeve is these like poor benighted like peasants are bent over in the fields and he's got like a stick that he's just holding over their head like you better stay to work girl like oh, just gosh. kind of this that's depressing who, who's the uh, who's the enforcer in Cool Hand Luke like that's that's my people oh, I guess I don't you remember. know yeah yeah that's your people <laughs> what we got here <laughs> failure. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Uh, back to the historical, it also freaks students out that it's really in the Bible itself. So even if you want to discount all of church history, if you look at the Bible, uh, there's an unfolding awareness of God, be it ancient, you know, sort of the Jews before they're in the land, the sort of whatever the, the pre-Israelites Abraham, are. Abraham, yeah. Like, he knows nothing. He's just told no. to go somewhere. You know, and even in the New Testament, the, the 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 famous bit with Acts ten and Cornelius that that they can break the 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 kosher law, yeah, and of course yeah. with Paul that Christians don't have to be circumcised. That all of that is kind of a historical awareness, and and students have a hard time with that. And and but that's such a powerful way of understanding why in some traditions you stand up for the reading of the gospel, and why mm-hmm. the message of Jesus goes against, in a sense, the idea of holy war in the Old Testament, that yeah. that the Old Testament had a limited understanding of God, that Jesus is the fullest understanding of God. So holy war, while it was being faithful to them, it's not faithful in a Christian setting exactly. Or it, it just it, it, it denies that things could change. Yeah. So, you know, a great example is always around Advent. It's not doesn't happen a lot in my world, but I've heard sermons where people treat it as it was so obvious. If you just look at Isaiah, sure. you're standing in Isaiah's day, yeah. you're going to go, oh, so in like a couple centuries, yeah. there will be a, a, a Jewish-born guy in Bethlehem, so obvious. Like, like not just that a Messiah, that God was going to intervene at some point, but that, that they should have known the playbook mm-hmm. ahead of time. And I always point them to First Peter. First Peter goes, no, no one in the past knew mm-hmm. what, what God was planning in the person of... Like, he, like, now we know more, and things are changing. And the kosher laws is a great example. Uh, circumcision question. They're, they're, it's, it's such a rapid upheaval. This is why the disciples look like bozos half the time uh, mm-hmm. the stories. It's like, oh, yeah. no, Jesus, don't die. It's like, <laughs> it's kind of like this whole thing is they're unaware. That, and you're right. It, the, the, it, it does happen in the scriptures. There's an unfolding language as God is revealing the plan in himself. And how would that change in church history? And the answer is, is it doesn't. One of the ways I put it maybe is this way. Let's take the early church again. Their instincts might have been towards a certain direction, but they're, they have to work out their vocabulary here. Mm-hmm. So as uh, this is uh, Luke Timothy Johnson out of Emory, uh, his you know, New Testament early Christian Love guy. Love that guy. Yeah. And he says, you know, they, they have, or Robert Wilkin, actually, of UVA, they had a Trinitarian way, mode of being. They baptized, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. They clearly talked about the Father and the Son. They had, they had languages of difference and unity. But it took later times and crises and debates for the church to kind of say, all right, guys, let's get together and let's figure out how we're going to describe this because we're all describing it differently. But that, that wobbliness, if to coin a word, Mm-hmm. is not a bad thing. Mm-mm. And I, I actually take people, I say, did you know this, any of this, any of these debates, any of these conversations when you were young or when you were new to the church or whatever? The answer is no. And I, I, this is on my, in my head because Hauerwas was just at Gordon-Conwell cool. uh, in the fall. Always a good time. 
Yeah, he he, he only cursed a little bit. That's right. kind of I hear crazy. he's I hear he's backed off a little. He's backed off. I think a bit. He's getting older. Um, <laughs> uh, he did say something with BS. I forget what he said, but it's like yeah. BS. Uh, like the whole room explodes. Right, like, so right, they were they were waiting for people it, are but, waiting exactly. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. He doesn't want to like be a yeah. caricature, but um, but he said um, the sort of provocative line that he said the Christian faith has to be trained. You you don't get it wholesale. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. It's not a download. It doesn't come into. He goes, it, it's a it's a a life of. And it's, he said it's usually the people in the church that you're interacting with that have to form you. And, and this is why he says I'm so autobiographical. It's not because it's not that I'm narcissistic. It's that my story as to how I grapple with this stuff is based off of the fact that I knew Yoder and, and Alistair McIntyre and After Virtue, mm. and those things shaped me. And then mm-hmm. I moved to Durham and it, these types of things. You know, so he, does, he says that the idea that you're in a vacuum thinking deep thoughts is such an enlightenment myth. Yeah. You're, you're cultivated as you walk with folks. And uh, he says that that implies training, mm-hmm. and it implies that you don't know what you're saying half the time, or you're saying it wrong, or you're overstating it, or whatever. And I think that that writ large is church history. Yeah, the the people as a whole sometimes have to pause and go, wait, what what do we think about justification or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And it also reflects a God of history, which is what you know the Bible is telling us that that. God is the God of you know the Jews in the Old Testament and the God of Jesus and the New Testament, and it's an unfolding, and it's a God made vulnerable in Jesus. One of the things that struck me for the past year or so, which just as a side note, that's along what Hauerwas is saying, it's a training that, and I'm, I'm sure you see this, like there's ideas you think about for a year or something, mm, and yeah. which we have the luxury of doing because we get to teach it and stress it. But the strange vulnerability of God, and, and I don't think that in a weird way takes away from God's power and omnipotence. So I, I'm not saying a, a process theology, it's somehow God is, we can mm. change God, but that, that God would become a baby, that God would let, you know, or not let even, that... It, Nicaea would shape the truth yeah. of the gospel. Like God is strangely vulnerable and yet powerful, and we see that in the cross. We see that in church history. Uh, uh, that somehow God depends on us, but God is also in control. And I think that's yeah. really marvelous, to be honest. Yeah, there's like a dance there that you can't quite explain. Yeah, like a parent with a child. You know, they're they're saying, like you're letting them slowly, mm-hmm. like develop how they're like. You, yeah, I could sit there and say, no, honey, two plus two is four. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to let them sit there and get it wrong and screw it up. And I'm going to be like, okay, that's fine. We're going to unfold it and, 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 yeah. and somehow be in control but allowing it. That, that, that's, a, that's a beautiful way of putting it because God could have right from the very beginning just sort of, again, almost like the uh, some cult or whatever might have, this idea that the, certain things just floated from the sky and here's, oh, that guys, I found it. Like right, the one right. document. And yeah. they sort of worship the document. Rather, there's this unfolding story that the documents bear witness to. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's this lived experience. And it doesn't make theology irrelevant. It doesn't make doctrine irrelevant. It just actually puts them in the context of how they came about and therefore actually, I think, enriches them. Yes. So I, I got more out of this conversation about free will and predestination by having studied and taught Dort hmm. and what the concerns were. And then having... St- taught the Wesleyan movement and some of those things, just as the sweep of history. Uh, I became a lot more into it than those times in college when I heard two people arguing about it, mm-hmm. just sort of yelling, you know, philosophical tropes at each other. Yeah. Because it's like, okay, th- this was born out of a context. So 
it's a both and in some way. Yes, yeah. Um, and, and I teach, teaching the ethics class, part of me wishes I could really let them argue these ethical dilemmas, but the truth is they need to learn, at least for Christian ethics, they got to learn the vocabulary. So we spend half the semester yeah. trying to get a sense of the tradition so then we can talk about it within a Christian ethical point of view. They may yeah. not agree with that point of view, that's fine, but uh, but yeah, there's a training. They, they, I can't just let them go and say, well, I think that, and I think that, right? Because my mom told me that. Like, that's not a legitimate argument, at least from a Christian ethical point of view. Well, and you see people casting about for the one voice, the one ministry, the one church, the one denomination, whatever, mm-hmm. that will give them the entire playbook, and they don't have to think. They don't have to reflect. They don't have to ask questions. And there are plenty of folks that will do that. I think they're quite dangerous to be that way. Mm-hmm. Like. Okay, you might be a Bible answer man. You might th- you know, think you have all the answers, but you're doing nothing for the disciple by giving, t- giving it to them as if it's so clear in the sense that your verbiage, your, your, your actual expression is the only one that they can go with. Mm-hmm. Maybe, it, 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 you've, I think you've said this before, it, it puts it in the humanities. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just with a student today talking about a paper, how, you know, the struggle of how to write and how to communicate what you think. And I always use this line with students, you know, when a lot, I always say a lot of students in their first year of seminary write like Texans, you know, they got swagger, everything's big, bold <laughs> uh-huh. uh, colors. And I always say, look, you can have a table with eight weak legs or four strong ones. Mm-hmm. You can throw every argument you think that comes in your head at this thing, and some of them might stick, or you can find the four good ones uh, that to reflect on. And the point of all that is we have to learn how to write and how to communicate. And, it, mm-hmm. and it, you know, we've taught, we've done sermons. You know, the, I, in fact, that'd be probably a funny episode is to go back and retell the story of our first sermon. All right. <laughs> you know, right. Like, it's like, oh. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> this on? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> you know. Matthew. I mean, Mark. No, wait. The other one. Luke. <laughs> a friend of mine in seminary, uh, his first sermon, he told me he was supposed to preach for like 25 minutes. He got up. <laughs> it's the funniest story. He has this sort of deep Southern drawl, and he says, yeah, uh, I... I just started talking, <laughs> and he's like, he goes, I don't remember what I said. Oh, um, no. He goes, at one point, he said there was a whiteboard behind him. He says, at one point, I walked up to the whiteboard and diagrammed something. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't remember what. Uh, and, then he, and then he finished, and he looked out, and he said he saw in the back row a guy. He said he's never seen a man with his mouth literally hanging open like, <laughs> from, like a cartoon. And then he was done. In seven and a half minutes. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> just, just barreled through it. Which no one was complaining about. They're like, yeah. yeah. Now, it may not be that bad, but but we all have stories of like the, the dumb things we did when we were first trying to communicate, right? Yeah. Why is theology any different? Why does it have to be perfectly pristine the first times it comes out of um, a tradition, a mouth? Like there are evolving debates that, I mean, put it this way, just because Luther really raise the question of the, the role of works and sanctification. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that every century before that was somehow just didn't care, didn't have a thought about it. Yeah, that's right. It's just that he he really propelled a time when they needed to really put something in a confessional, you know, Trent for the Catholics or confessional documents for, for Protestants. He, he just propelled a new, oh, we got to get serious about this. And just as we might, you know, go through a phase where we really think about something for the first time. Mm-hmm. An unfolding dialogue, something like that. Well, is that a good place to wrap it up? think so. All right.